Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Today's guest, Pat Armitstead, has lived quite a life. One particular phrase really stuck with me and it was, meet grief with acts of service. And that's been true in my experience as well. And whether you're ready to look at your grief that way or you will be at a time in the future when you're able to give back and you're able to help other people, then you don't only heal yourself, but you heal every person that you touch. Pat has done exactly that using humor, using joy, teaching self-expression, and I can safely say she is magical. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I do. Pat Armitstead, welcome to the Grief Code Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm wonderful. Awesome to be here with you. Thank you. Great to hear. Now, it's rare that I get to speak to someone who's got as much experience as you do. And some of the stories you've already told me are amazing. Really looking forward to unpacking them. A uh, One particular name stood out when I was flicking through your bio and it was uh, touring with Patch Adams. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Um, <clears throat> I had a series of losses at the turn of the century and part of that healing process, I did a couple of pilots in aged care um, and following that met this woman who in her 80s, who had toured with Patch, and she shared with me photos from that experience uh, and her story. When she came back to New Zealand, that was, uh, following her tour with Patch, she went off, um, left her husband for a year and went and did School of the Performing Arts and uh, did the whole shooting match. Never did learn to juggle, but <laughs> the rest. Um <laughs> And it was in that conversation with her, she shared with me seeing this child, perhaps six or seven years of age with bilateral um, cleft palate and um, hair lip, um, being specialed by some American nurses and their time was going to be over soon and they would be back to coping the best way they could. Um, surgery was not an option. And it just struck me if that was here or, you know, I was in New Zealand then um, or there, then the surgery would be done, everything. That child would be looking perfect yeah. before the girl. You know, the, the wounds would have healed and, um, and there was no chance for that. So 
it was two or three days pursuing, because um, you can only talk to Patch on the phone. Uh, he does now have a computer, but he didn't then. And um, long story, I, I rang Patch and I said, I'd like to come with you on your next Healing with Humour tour through Russia, um, Moscow and St. Petersburg, 16 days, 36 wow. people in clown persona. <clears throat> and he said to me, don't come because of me, Pat. Come because you'd like to find and spend your clown self. Come because <laughs> you'd like to experience the disparity between rich and poor. Come because you'd like to find at least one Russian friend. And so um, off I went. I had 12 months to raise the funds and, and go. It was pretty expensive. It was um, 10000 for the trip plus airfares. Yep. Um, and then I had this amazing um, 16 days of being more present in my life than I've ever been before or since. I actually wow. studied improv acting before I went. Um, did clown school a couple of times, never did learn to juggle. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't about that. He said, I don't care if you know any magic or any tricks. I want you to be able to walk in and sit down beside a child who might be dying with cancer um, or manner of disabilities and be present and make something happen. So we had 16 days, 36 clowns, get out of the bus, all had bubble machines, only one piece of music. We all sang, You Are My Sunshine. And we would walk towards these grey, stark, blank, empty buildings, no toilet paper, no hand towel, no light bulbs, uh, very primitive tools, equipment, uh, resources, and empty of all these orphanages, just empty of personal possessions. Hmm. None. Just wow. stark. And Patch has been doing that tour for 30 years now. And so many of the places he returns and children stay there until they're 16 and released into community. Um, so those who are in that kind of age bracket, um, they're there next year when he comes back and they wait. Each year okay. they wait. And oh, there are so many stories I could share from there, um, but perhaps the, ma the major learning I had was, number one, I didn't spend all that much personal time with Patch, but he gave me permission to be fully who I was striving to become post those losses, right, wow. just by merit of, he said, there are no rules. If you don't get on with um, your roommate, too bad. If you don't <laughs> like the food, too bad. Um, he, the first week we stayed in a miners' five-star hotel in Moscow, the windows didn't close. We slept in all our um, <laughs> window warm. It was uh, November. Um, Every bit then, of clothing that you'd taken. Yes. And then 
The second week, we stayed in a in an eight-star hotel, and every morning at breakfast, this woman in glorious ball gowns would step up onto a dais and play the harp. Oh, yeah. So it provided this um, incredible extremes of landscape. Yeah. And some days we'd eat, we'd eat beautifully at some fine dining restaurant in the evening, and other times we'd eat with the children and be a bit afraid that it might not stay down, you know. Um, yeah, well. And, yeah, so I came back feeling more vital and alive than I'd ever felt in my whole life. And wow. it was because I was present to it all. Amazing. Now, self-expression <laughs> is such a big, important part of who you are as much as what you do. And and even for those who are just listening, like Pat's got this exquisite uh, top on there and colours everywhere and... So what did you learn in that, on that tour about your own self-expression? I'm a makeup artist and doing makeup, which I did about 20, 25 years ago, was like the arts degree. I never got to do what I wanted to when I left school. And so I knew how to be creating lots of clown faces. So I had... Um, my clown persona and a puppet that matched Doubting Thomas <laughs> is my alter ego. <clears throat> did, you say, did you say uh, Doubting Thomas? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, cool. So my alter ego. But, yeah. um, for all that I've achieved, there's been this Doubting Persona aspect of myself. Yeah. So as each day unfolded, I had... Heavy, started with quite heavy makeup, um, and each day I'd experiment. Might do something different in the morning, in the afternoon. Might have um, the tears of a clown, um, and change. But I realised as time progressed, um, all I needed to really do was perhaps have a couple little dots on my cheek and my mouth and my nose. Um, I didn't need. I could shed the mask. Yeah, right. Literally and figuratively. Beautiful. And uh, I only knew about six words of Russian, and one of those was vodka. <laughs> um, <laughs> and but it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, to to step into and um, be in that in that um, presence, you just allowed things to unfold. There's no plan. So we yeah. walked into the Deaf, Dumb and Blind Institute and a little girl in a blue velvet dress came towards me holding out her hand and she pulled me across into a room on the side, pulled me down onto the floor and started playing with my left earrings. And in that moment, I experienced such wonder and awe for what I anticipated was coming. I had no idea about anything about her yeah. and she's playing with my earrings and then she started to hum and I knew by the tonal quality of her voice, she's deaf. So she hummed for a time, still playing here, yeah. 
And then she stopped. And I thought, ah, okay, my turn. So I hummed, she hummed, and I hummed for 45 minutes till they came and called me to get on the bus. Wow. And in that 45 minutes, I never had a single stray thought. Wow. It was only her and I. It's my one and only experience of that miracle, if you like. Yeah. Uh, that I've never experienced that level of presence for so long. Isn't it amazing how we overcomplicate life and, and someone in that environment just teaches you presence at a level yeah. that you've never experienced before or again? That is uh, profound. Wow. And, of course, she was deaf and she was picking up my vibrations off my ear. Wow. Yeah. That is whoa, what a story. So you mentioned, you've, you've touched on it a couple of times, is that you, you have that desire to... to to be in art, you also shared a story of how that didn't come to be, despite the fact you'd immersed yourself in in art all through A through school. So share a little bit about that, because I know a lot of people will be able to identify perhaps a career path that uh, not necessarily fully of their choice, and mm-hmm. and uh, how you can still thrive by taking well, any up in the same place, but from maybe a different path than what you expected. Yeah. yeah. So, as I mentioned before the show, um, always wanted to be an artist. I wanted to go off and do an arts degree. That was my vision. Um, Excel, I've got 100% in art all through high school. And mum kept saying to me, well, I don't think so. I think you should, you know, go and get a proper job Um, because there's that starving artist thing that still still exists. (laughs) Um, And so it was that I ended up nursing and um, the very first man that I ever bed bathed was a man by the name of Bob Hall. A construction crane had fallen on Bob, 35 broken bones. He came into casualty and they stood around and they pretty much said, he's not going to make it. However, he was still alive four hours later So they risked taking him to theatre, fearing he might die on the table. Bob didn't die on the table and they're trolling him back to the recovery ward and the conversation had changed and they said, poor beggar, he'll probably be a vegetable. So to everyone's surprise, Bob woke up in recovery and revealed by his language that indeed he wasn't going to be a vegetable. And so the conversation changed again. And they said, well, he'll never walk again. (laughs) 35 broken bones. Bob was in hospital for the whole three years of my general nurse training. He went home for the odd weekend, but essentially he was there all that period of time. He walked on two steps to my graduation ceremony and stood up the back. And when the ceremony proper was done, he uh, held up one of those sticks and said, boy, (laughs) I'd actually like to say something. (laughs) At that point, (laughs) I'm kind of trembling in my boots because my mother (laughs) is sitting in the front row (laughs) and I've got a bit of an idea 
or what Bob's going to talk about. <laughs> so he came forward and he had a three-foot scroll, three sheets of A4 paper long, and he started reading out all the tricks and pranks and terrible things that I did to him over that three-year period. And every now and again, my mother would go, oh, Patricia, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And when, when he'd finished, he handed me that scroll and he said, you don't know what you did. And I never really got that. I got it at one level, but I never really got that till 2000 and I had all of those losses. Then I really got it. It's like even though I was unconscious, I saw Bob Hall. Every single day I was on duty, whether I was rostered to his floor or not. And, and when I look back at that, it's like I didn't realise it at the time, but I knew commitment. Wow. And I had, I had Bob Hall's back. Yeah, and you were healing him every single day by the sound of it. Yep. I did get sent to Matron's office quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> for some of the tricks. <laughs> um, <clears throat> however, uh, you know, I never got dismissed. The, um, and, you know, the, so, so there it began, my, my journey into my compassionate nature. But seeing the uh, relevance of humour and how it can heal. Um, so I nursed for 20 years eventually becoming matron of a hospital. And the um, that journey, you know, there was the Granville train disaster, yeah. uh, a range of other, uh, a nurse in Sydney, um, a range of other traumatic incidents, highlights through that 20-year career. Um, I remember second year in casualty, Saturday night, uh, car accident, young girls brought in, 16 years old, and her injuries were such that her head was almost decapitated, but she was still alive. <laughs> her parents were sitting out in the waiting area, upset, obviously, and I'm only a second year, so I'm kind of in the background while the emergency team are doing what they can. Uh, and every now and again, they would send me with a specific message for the parents. And I remember then, I was only you know, halfway through my training, I was able to go out and relay the message with empathy, but still able to do my job. And for me, therein lies that curious thing of empathy to be touched emotionally but not be had by your emotions. And, you know, I would have been only 18 um, at that point. And I knew, I knew, I, no one taught me to do that. It's natural, yeah. Um, so, so, Pat, I'm, I'm curious, like you, you've got empathy, which means that, that you've got these abilities. Also know that when you've got empathy that, when you're dealing with big stuff like this that other people are going through, sometimes you can carry that with you. How did you 
cope with the the day-to-day intensity of of other people's not just the patients but the people that were there waiting for them yep see i I trained in the old-fashioned way hospital-based training and so we all lived in and uh, you don't want to know half the nonsense that we got up to (laughs) after hours (laughs) um so i i think again humor only nurses can joke about the things they joke about right you go to lunch and and you're you're making jokes and wisecracks about uh, you know all manner of sensitive material but you know you're not peers so um and it's not derogatory it's it's um, yes it, it is and the so I think that, and and also the camaraderie. In those days, if I was on the female ward, friend was on the male ward, um, I finished all my admissions, ready to go home at three, she's still got two or three more to do, we wouldn't dream of just going home. We'd be down to the other ward and help them finish and then we'd all go home together. Yeah. Different wouldn't world fail now. So, you know, the, we were taught some or modelled some really good leadership traits and ways of being in the world beyond the nurse's uniform was beyond mm. that. Yeah, amazing. Now, you, you referenced it before. You said uh, that everything came crashing down uh, around the turn of the century. So... Can you share a little bit about exactly what that involves and and how that impacted you? The um, I left nursing um, after twenty years and my first relationship um, finished. Uh, went on a working holiday around Australia for five years, um, amazing, <laughs> and then returned to life. Lived totally off the grid and then returned to life so my son could go to high school and didn't know what I wanted to do, but wasn't nursing, I couldn't go back. Um, So long story short, I ended up with my own video production company, which I ran for 11 years, producing, in the end, producing commercials, freelancing for the news 2020, 60 minutes, and producing promotional videos, videos back then. Um, so, so there was my arts degree, right, yeah. in a practical yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So many uh, ways of being creative um, and um, creating it and, and playing it back, you know. <clears throat> um, so at the end of last century, um, things were a bit, a bit of a downturn in the economy, um, local business, I was living in Grafton, New South Wales at the time, um, 16 businesses in the main street closed, things are going down the gurgler. We did a range of things to recover and move through that. Um, but my partner of 20 years at that point, uh, he wanted to go home, he came from New Zealand. Hmm. So um, that wasn't on my plan to do that. However, I succumbed and went and um, I left Australia 
owing 80,000, uh, which I actually paid off in two years, very proud of that. <clears throat> I had had cancer. My family hadn't spoken and still haven't since 1989. Um, when, you say, when you say family, like which, which part of your family are you talking? My, my sisters. Right. Um, and that remains the same. The, uh, my first relationship had been violent. And um, so I arrived in New Zealand and in the first 18 months that I was there, um, I had 10 car accidents. <laughs> None my fault, honest. <laughs> Nine times I got um, someone ran up the back of me at a stop sign, not the same stop sign, um, and once I got collected in a roundabout. Um, so a little bit of crash karma happening there. Mm, interesting. <clears throat> and, yes, very. <laughs> um, and, you know, once I got through all of that, had repaid the money, um, the, my, my partner of 20 years um, found another woman, um, denied that she was anything uh, more than a friend, but six yep. months later, he was moving out with her. And he, the last sentence that came out of his mouth um, before we left the house was, no, I don't love you, and I never loved you. Oh. So in that moment, I disintegrated. Yeah, I bet. And I thought, if that's true, then everything I've ever known is not true. Hmm. So um, I was a mess for a time, and my um, my doctor wanted to medicate me, and I said no. <laughs> I have every right to be experiencing all of what's going on, given the history of the last two or three, four years. Um, it helped me deal with my grief, and she wasn't the answer. So I found a holistic practitioner. GP, um, <clears throat> who saw me for an hour and a half on the first consult, got his guitar out and played me a song. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then I went to a grieving seminar. And then I had a conversation with a um, magician in South Australia. I'm, I'm over in New, Ze New Zealand at this point. <clears throat> and it was in that conversation with the magician who had invited me to bring laughter workshops to New Zealand. It was just a lull, that little quiet moment. Yeah. And I got a message and the message was, oh my God, we've got radiology, pathology, hematology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. Oh, goosebumps. So <clears throat> I became the world's first joyologist and it's been, um, as you'd appreciate, I'm sure, if you set out on a pioneering journey, there will be those who will thwart your progress. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so to think that I might 
bravely consider that, oh, you're going to give, bring joy into business in New Zealand. I don't think so, Pat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did two pilots in aged care. <clears throat> um, the first was teaching 29 residents yogic laughter. You know, laughing yoga. You come across that? No. Oh, well, I won't give you a full example, but it's the fun you're having when you're not having fun. <laughs> um, it's, it's more than just pretend laughter, but it's pretend laughter, whole series of exercises along with breathing um, stuff. And so the residents of this rest home did a half hour laughter yoga workout every day for 90 days. And they were accredited as New Zealand's first laughter facility. <laughs> um, went on to achieve a world record in the Guinness Book of Records for laughing continuously for one hour. Um, we did rounders, so nobody fired <laughs> in the process. <laughs> and at the end of that, I thought I go away now. And and something is really significant to me. In in that time, I had lost all the love in my life had gone. Uh, not my son. My son was still in my life, but he was over here in Australia. Um, and I would still be very upset driving to um, work each day. <clears throat> I tidied myself up in the car park and I walked in and 29 elderly people, 60 to 105, loved me when I thought no one else did. Wow. And you know, to um, to experience that, un they didn't care who I'd been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they only knew that I arrived and they did, we did those laughter workshops and uh, I had funny hats and, you know, two, two old ladies would wait at the door and they, you could hear them because they were deaf, so they'd be talking loudly. <laughs> and I wonder what she's got on today or I wonder what tricks she's bringing today. Wow. So I think the word you're about to use, but you kind of changed direction, unconditional love, right? Yeah. Yeah. And from what you've described before, not, not just uh, conditional love, but not even love is what your ex-partner told you. But it's amazing how often we experience these moments where it is very conditional, particularly with those closest to us. And, and when we want, different way than some aren't prepared to come on that journey so if you look at where you were at and just how much of a hole you were in like how important was having that outreach and having that even though you were supporting them having feelings supported back by them like how important was that one of the things that i think is so important for anyone moving through grief and loss from whatever yeah. Um, reason um, is to find a way to be of service. Yeah. You know, I, I allowed myself to express the grief driving to and from, mm -hmm. but I tied to myself, I'd get up to go in and do what um, we did. And it was so, and there's a part of being a nurse, you stepped into a role. So in, in that, that first pilot especially, 
certainly stepped into who I need to be in order to run the laughter workshop. Um, and then at the end of that period, um, I, I knew if I walked away, it'll probably fade away and they'll never do it again. And there'd already been some remarkable changes. Uh, they had started to take the mickey out of their infirmity. So they would pinch each other's underwear from the laundry and uh, <laughs> hang it up in the uh, dining room and um, just start to be really naughty and playful rather than passive recipients of whatever you want to do to me, mm. which is often how it is in those environments. It wasn't a bad rest home, not at all. It was great. <clears throat> So I, I talked to the owner and I said, I'd actually like to do a second pilot, 12 months long. I want to assess to the best of our ability um, the residents' multiple intelligence and then do the staff. And then I want to create an activities program that feeds into all of those intelligence. And to make a long story short, we did. Um, and just so many miracles unfolded there as, you know, 50, 60, 70, uh, 100 104-year-old lady used to have Thomas every day from 10.30 to 11. She'd put him on her ankle and give him a ride. She would read him poetry. Uh, <laughs> a little book that she had there for her grandchildren, she'd read him those. So this playful spirit um, was born in the pretend laughter, so you end up laughing for real, <laughs> um, yeah. and then tapping into elements of themselves that for many of them they'd never visited. One lady painted her first painting and it was one of those clipper ships that she reproduced off a biscuit tin. Yeah. Extraordinary. Her son had so, tears in his eyes when he saw it. He just couldn't believe. I, I, I bet. Uh, given that you've been part of the medical industry and you've seen the traditional approach, but you've also seen all of these experiences that you talk about, which is bringing joy, which is bringing fun, which is bringing mischief, what have you seen in the difference in outcomes? Um. I didn't, I didn't do enough to make it more of a clinical trial, but those two pilot programs of the 29 residents over the 15 months, four came off um, long-term uh, antidepressant therapy. Um, people started to paint and create. Yeah. One woman in her 60s who uh, was a burnt-out alcoholic, um, we had a 10-week rhythm therapy series and on the fourth session, she was just beating two sticks and she got a rhythm and her face just lit up like a, yeah. a light. And when that session was over, she came to me and said, I want to ring my ex-husband. I'm like, Okay. She said, will you come with me? And I said, of course. So she rang him and she said, um, 
I know you come here every couple of weeks to visit me. I don't want you to come here ever again. I know that I was so drunk throughout all of our lives together that I, I stood by and let you repeatedly abuse sexually my daughter. Um, and, and more of that story. She hung up the phone and I should say she used to suffer with anxiety attacks. Hmm. Hung up the phone and then she said, now I'd like to see a priest. So get a priest who came uh, pretty much straight away and she went and spent time with him. And when she came out, she um, she she had um, a window had opened in that time frame. We used to joke, uh, it's not really very funny, but we used to joke she had two neurons and they just would occasionally meet. Um, and however, in, in this hour or a couple of hours, including the after session, um, her, her whole faculty opened up fully to experience and close off all of that hideous, painful history. Wow. That's and profound, she never, she never, ever had another anxiety attack. Oh. See, this, this is, uh, this is why well, I'm so passionate about what I do because it's like I, I you can create. I, I can hear it when I see you writing yeah, you can change people's whole world, their their whole future, and it's been overcomplicated. And what you're describing is like, obviously there's a structure to it, but it's simplicity. And what you just described there, that what that's not changing lives; that's saving lives. Yes. Amazing. When. Um... <clears throat> So I used to go back there after I'd finished those two pilots. I used to go back and visit everyone, say hello. And I used to always leave the two 83-year-olds till last. And we had this little routine that we went through. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd visit and I'd say, oh, well, I'd better be going now. Time to go. And Joan and Christina were their names. And Joan would say, right, now, you be good, she says. And Christina would say, and if you can't be good, be careful. And Joan would say, and if you can't be careful, remember the date, right? And then they would both burst into 83, both burst into peals of laughter because that was their naughty little joke. <laughs> I reckon we did that 40 times. Yeah. And, and there's like, for me, that's... Um, spiritual intimacy mm. it wasn't about the joke yeah we knew each other even though you know they were um not fully compass mentors if you like um but un until they passed they both meditated every day in the afternoon at two o'clock wow never did it before but that <laughs> was one of the one of the offerings so 
people don't know what they don't know about themselves until until you find a um, a key, like yeah. your in the to um, to unlock it. And you know that there's so much I believe or don't believe about dementia. Yeah. In all of its various forms, yes, there's probably some medical interference, but you know you heal you heal the wounded soul. Yep. And and you create a, a different life experience. Yeah, I agree. And uh, having had an experience with someone recently, which. Um, it's not their story to tell, but I will, uh, sorry, it's not their story for me to tell, but I will say that by getting them to voice what they'd experienced, their memory that they thought was going, as far as I can see now, is it's like what you'd expect for someone of an older age, but it's back to what it was because they'd experienced someone else's trauma, which had created a trauma for them. And you just wonder how often those things snowball and take people into a worse and worse place. And and the trauma of the experience of the onset and the diagnosis and then the noticing it, I imagine, would accelerate the whole process. Yeah, and the... You know, I, I learned way back in when, when I got this job as matron, I was only 29, so it's amazingly young. Didn't yeah. think I'd get it, but they kept calling me back for the next interview and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I might get it. <laughs> um, and they, the last interview I had, the two owners were showing me around and I thought, oh, well, you know, I've told them all there is to tell. I just need to be me. You know, so we're walking around and if I saw peas on the floor, I would pick them up or notice them. If I saw cobwebs at 40 paces in the corner of a room, I would comment. <laughs> uh, just like the running, you know, <laughs> the literal running my fingers along the, yeah. the dust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we got back to the office, they said, yeah, we'd love you to um, begin. And they said that's that was the day. So, you know, there I was, like I had the professional front just out of uni, going to change the world, um, got some great ideas about a range of stuff, but it was in the real me in the last interview that went to the interface as if they weren't there really um, that, that made the show. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, wow. Now... Pat, you've got such a vast experience with all manner of grief. Is it okay if I ask you about your sisters? Uh, sure, yeah. So how did that separation unfold? There's, there's one element I can't share. However, my two sisters had a disagreement. Yeah. Um, and... It was, you know, a relatively small disagreement, um, but there was, like, no forgiveness. So, and it just persisted. And um, it just rolled out and had its impact 
on everyone, so including myself. And I tried for five years to intervene, um, solve it, get one to forgive, get the other, um, you know, introduce all manner of interventions, if you like. Um, and in the end, I had to just go, I can love them anyway. Yeah. Because it's, it's not mine to fix. So and, uh, did they turn on you through that process? Um, yes, in, in as much as the cold shoulder. Like, it was part of my reason to move to New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, it's like things have gone down the gurgler here, not doing so good, oh, 80 grand. <laughs> what are we to do? No soft place for me to land. Um, so let's go and, um, you know, take five over with his family. Um, and, and that was a big factor in, in my choosing to, um, to make that move. And um, my second partner, after 12 months, the woman he was, he, uh, it all uh, dissolved between him and the woman that he left with. Hmm. And he came back and asked about, you know, any chance we could get back together. And I said, oh, oh wow. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I said to him, in order for me to cope, I had to change. All right. Yeah. And when we need to make that level of unrecognisable change, there, there's no going back because you can't, you can't restore it. And, you know, I, I relate that very much to my consciousness shifted in a very big way and I committed whatever comes up now, I'm going to it. If you think you're going to pull off joyology, Pat, you're going to need some a very clever mentor. So I sourced out and found Mike Hutchison, who was the ex-MD of Saatchi and Saatchi in Auckland, and um, <clears throat> finally get the appointment with him, and then I'm terrified. I'm like, what am I going to say to him? He offers Saatchi and Saatchi. <gasps> anyway, in the mail, I haven't got it here with me, came a tiny little bottle of Dettol, and I got an idea. So I took that bottle of Dettol, got a makeup sponge, two cotton buds and a Band-Aid, put in a little cellophane packet, put in a little treasure chest. I go and meet Mike and I gift him this little box. He lifts the lid and lifts out the pack and says, um, what's this pack? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Mike, I'm not here to sponge off you. I do have the germ of an idea. It's got a couple of applications and I don't want it to be a Band-Aid job. I'm developing joyology. I have no idea what it is or, or where it's going to go or how it will be. Will you be my mentor and will you help me source funding? And he said yes and yes, and it took that long. Oh, tingles. Um, and what the theme all the way through is because you bought your unique and full of your own self-expression to the table. Yes. And wow. the, that creativity has always been 
dampened by external people, mainly. Um, yeah. The uh, and yeah, the tall puppy thing. Um, lots of stories around that. <laughs> um, yep. And you know, to my my resolve has been through this this twenty two years. Um, has, has just been the commit. One of my commitments was uh, any further study I do, it's all going to be. I want to be able to express language-wise in the highest consciousness that I can at at each time. So all of the and I did NLP and Master Prac and Embraining and a few others, and it was all about not so much being able to do those processes. I just wanted the the experience, and the other thing I did was improv acting. Um, I studied improv mainly for when I talked on stage, um, not so much to be a comedy performance, but yeah. to improv. The rules of improv are first thought is correct. All players are equal. Nobody wins if someone tries to win, and you need to be open to receive and ready to give. What a good way of being in the world. Beautiful. Absolutely. Can we um, can we come back to the improv? Because you mentioned uh, consciousness a few times. Can you can you explain to the listeners what that means? Because they'll either be having gone through some sort of awakening or in the process of connecting to a higher consciousness. So can you give them your thoughts on on exactly what that means in a way that they'll understand so that they can continue to raise their consciousness? I'll try. <laughs> the, if, if, I, if we go back to what I did for Bob Hall, yeah. I was not conscious then in, in the way that I feel I am now. Um, so but there was an innate thing within me, not totally given full, um, it's not just mental expression, full bodily expression. Yeah. However, it was um, so highly attuned in me that I just trusted it. So I knew if I was going to pull this prank and this trick, well, if Matron hears about it, I might get a trip there. Um, but it was all just perfect. And then what Bob said when he gave me the scroll, you don't know what you did. I did, but only at a, only at a, you know, like a halfway mask, halfway level. Yeah. When all of those things happened at the turn of the century, that's when I got it. And I cried. I cried for Bob. And for, for that connection that we had, even though I wasn't deeply conscious and in it, like I was with that little girl who was deaf. Yeah. The, what strikes me at that is that you, the, the cry would not just be for him but for you because it's like it's relief, it's, it's joy because when you have a realisation of the impact that you've made, that brings overwhelming emotion. And everything that you've described there, even through your pain, is these mom these beautiful moments. Um, there's a guy from Wayside, 
um, Graham Long, I think it is, and he talks about touching the awesome. Those moments of like, I get them as uh, tingles or goosebumps, like what you describe then, and to, for him to go to that effort to actually show up and share that, and even though you weren't fully conscious of it, just to share, because you, again, it comes back to the same place. It's like you saved his life. And, and I really get, like, I know he had 35 broken bones and I saw, I saw all of that and, you know, the railroad tracks that became his body for scars. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, or at two, in 2000, I really get the wounded soldier who came forward. Yeah. I didn't at the time. I understood the, the wonder of it. But I didn't get the depth of that wounded soldier who, through all of that, had, um, you know, first they thought he'd die, then they'd say he'd brain dead. Um, you know, it was a huge crane that fell on him. Um, I was, you know, and, and there's a thing about, I don't know, destiny is the word, but I was meant to have all of those experiences because. I evolved my compassionate self. I go into advertising and develop all of these creative components. My, my brain then was like a pinball parlor with balls going and flippers. <laughs> um, and then now I can marry the two and, and serve humanity in a way I never thought possible. Yeah. I just had this thought where you were describing that was like, you know, um, you know, you just described how Patch Adams say, oh, you don't need to do magic. You've been doing magic this whole time. Like yeah. I have, knowing what I know about people who can hold space for people is that would he have survived if you hadn't been there holding space for him like you were doing unconsciously? Would he have continued to have gone on that journey of like you're, you're holding the pain for him, you're – the, what you describe with a little girl just just connecting with you straight away. You have this again, it's that unconscious ability to connect with people unconsciously, connect to their energy, and let them feel safe. Well, that's that's magic to me. That's real magic. One of the things I say when I'm giving a presentation and I talk about you know the 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 story, I give my story in whatever condensation of that. Um, and then I talk a little bit about my doubting elements, doubting sight. Yeah. Um, and the, I've had a lot of bullying these last 20 years, um, which has really challenged me to uh, take stock of myself, raise my boundaries, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. like repeatedly. <clears throat> And then um, because I committed, whatever comes up, I'm going to it. I've had to look at myself and look at my dark side. And, you know, for not so much now, but um, say the first four or five years in this century, I was running a racket where I'm afraid, I'm terrified, and... um, 
I'm not worthy. Hmm. Not exactly the stance you want to be taking if you're going to call yourself a joyologist. <laughs> However, it's, I believe we can, I saw it when I used to drive to that rest home. We can grieve and we can lead. Right? We don't have to finish grieving and then we can go off and lead. No. <laughs> uh, life doesn't stop while we're grieving. But there's a level of presence that I think we need to reach. Um, you might be familiar with the map of consciousness. Yeah. Do you know it? Um, it, it it's like a Bible to me to, to be able to lead clients even in through one conversation to see, you know, where we go from shame at the very bottom, you know, resonance or a scale of 20 um, and, and what that means. So I, joyology wasn't born out of my search for joy. Joyology was born from my experience of shame, grief and embarrassment. Mm, yeah. And so, I, I hope that's kind of answered. So, so there's been, you know, 22 years of healing, mm, <laughs> 23 nearly. Um, yeah. And it doesn't stop. You know, the I lost my first child, um, a daughter. She was full term and stillborn. Um, she was buried as baby Armistead. And I didn't think anything of that because that's what they did at the time and I just followed yeah. suit. Um, not conscious <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in, in the way I am now. And um, at that grieving seminar that I mentioned, a celebrant friend had gone with me. The person presenting that seminar had worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and he was presenting to 400 parents who had lost children from the Starship Hospital, which is Auckland's Children's Hospital. Mm -hmm. And he was helping them set up um, remote groups. So once they left the embrace of Starship, they could be forming their own little networks. And at the end of the session, I'm in the front row because that's where I like to sit. And... Um, I'm that kind of girl, you see. <laughs> and he's coming along the front row and he's asking the parents, and, and what was your child's name? And I thought, oh, my God, don't let him ask me because I never gave her a name. Hmm. So I told my celebrant friend after the meeting and she said, oh, that's all right, chicken. She said, we'll have a naming ceremony. Beautiful. And so we did. And I called her Willow. Oh. And there's a song, Paul McCartney, <laughs> Ben Little Willow, not one of their uh, major hits, but way back in the day. And the uh, social worker at Starship Hospital. Again, when I first started joyology, I approached 100 people and said, here's my idea, what do you reckon? <laughs> and he said to me, Pat, I love you. He said, what a wonderful story. And he said, there's a spare desk here. It's yours anytime you're in the city and you need a place to work, you can come and work from here. 
but he said it's never going to happen. Huh. Joyology never happened. However, that wasn't like the end of that conversation because it was he who sent me a tape with Ben Little Willow at the same time I was preparing for the naming ceremony. What? Yes. I so want this book. Um, it's taken me years to, to get to this point to write the book. And part of it has been, I want to be able to express it. Um, and there's been painful periods where I just can't write anymore at the moment. Um, so I needed to, you know, move through that. And now it, it is basically uh, I can be clean with what I'm writing in there and anything that might confront some people who are still alive, so be it. However, I know that's going to happen, but I'll couch it in such a way. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, can I just can I just go right back before we mention more about the book um, or books because you've got a lot of them <laughs> in the works and and they're already published. Where does this natural empathy? I mean, maybe is it natural, or is it something that's that's a that's you know runs in the family and this and this mischievous and uh, and desire for self-expression come from have you have you thought back to those young years like is it is it linked to a relationship with a parent or something else my father was a very funny man yeah um mother not so much uh more serious <laughs> um my mother my mother up until the day she died used to always say to me Oh, for goodness sake, Patricia, how silly could you be? Wow. So, you know, the when when we're fed repeating patterns, patterns of language, um, after Andrew said those words to me, I don't mm. love you, I've never loved you, I vowed that my words would always be a balm. So good. So John D. Martini, I don't know if you know his work, yeah. Um, yeah. I won a spot on his breakthrough experience, four-day intensive, and the, <clears throat> that's when I really got to appreciate the perfection of all of it, Pat. All right? <laughs> um, it's taken a while, but the perfection of all of it. I sat in the audience of his introductory two-hour thing and someone, you know, there was a chance to win two free seats and I just surrounded myself in a cone of silence or energy um, and said, pick me. <laughs> and he did. So and, cool. and the powerful language that comes, there was an artist friend in my life who were the blades of grass on his property grew absolutely perpendicular because they wouldn't dare do anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, 
we were just friends, but I, I had it that uh, in his eyes I could do nothing right, right, running the racket of I'm not good enough and I'm mm -hmm. not worthy. Um, and after D. Martini's um, workshop, I came home, resigned from the art group that we were both part of, and he said, oh, does this mean you won't help me anymore? And I said, no, not at all. I said, however, um, I know I've been out of a sense of obligation. Anytime you've asked me to do something, I've always said yes. However, now I'm going to be more authentic. And it's the most powerful sentence I've ever said. So good. Mm -hmm. So the, and we can't get, um, um, you know, what's the my, my book is called Joyful Empowerment. The only way out is through. And, you know, that's been the magic of the mission, the, the thing for me. As soon as I made that commitment, whatever comes up, I'm going to go to it. Um, I started to experience paradox and synchronicity side by side, challenge and support side by side, whereas before yep. there'd been gaps. And I've just got 100 stories. Um, audience would say to me, how, how do you get life to give you all these stories? And I just step out, excuse me, in intention. Not intention for that, just in intention. Mm. What strikes me is that you keep having more of these stories because you've treated every one of them the same way as, okay, well, I can take a positive out of this and I can not just transform myself, but I can transform others. You, like you said, to cover, to recover from grief, connect to an act of service. And that's what you've done the whole way through. When, when I moved to New Zealand, people said, oh, you'll be six months getting work. And I'm like, oh, I don't think so. We're, we owe 80,000. No, <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah. So I applied for um, six jobs. Trimmed it back to three, kept going back over a period of about two weeks. Uh, this was for private training providers, and um, went back to this one place for the third time. And the owner was there, and she said, "Where'd you hear the other day?" And I said, "Yes." She said, uh, "Didn't we tell you there's no there's nothing here?" I said, "Yes." Uh, she said, and besides, she said, "I've never employed an Australian." And I don't know where it came from, but I just said, well, today might be the day. And she laughed, <laughs> off, laughed the head off, took me into the boardroom, and I got a job. It just and goes to show. In that job, yeah. <laughs> in that, that job, the attendance rate for students was 35%, and so were outcomes. Not good. All second chance learners, and it wasn't working. And um, they had this process for, um, I believe, in catching people doing something right. And their process for people not coming was to write this hideous letter saying, you know, get your sorry ass in here or you're out. And I thought, I'm not signing that. There's no way I'm sending that out with my name on. Mm. Mm. So I refused. 
And instead, I went into the classroom and I sat with those who came. And over a period of time, the two years that I was there, I wrote 2,001 page letters celebrating, honouring, congratulating them for wherever they were at. The room, when I left, the attendance rate was 85% and so were outcomes. Catch people Amazing. doing something right. Look for the good. Uh, and how simple was that? When I left, I committed, I'm going to do that now until I no longer So I think I might say you, I have sent <laughs> over the 26,000 pieces of what I call glad mail. Oh, that's magic, Pat. So good. Now, I want to give you a couple of opportunities to, to share where people can find you. But before you do that, can you just share, you said you've you've co-authored 11 books, was it, with your grand, grandson? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that project. That sounds amazing. Um, well, he, he's, he, you asked about, you know, are we born with that? Um, we were sitting drawing here one day. He was much younger, about five or six, and he drew a broken heart. And I thought, oh, where's this going? What's he drawing here? And he's got fun things happening one side and sad things happening the other and the jagged bit in the middle. Hmm. And I didn't say anything. I just watched. And he turned to me and he said, you know, Nana, he said, happiness and sadness both live in the heart. Five or six. Wow. And even younger than that, he, um, when I came back from New Zealand, I was very unwell, stayed with my son for a time, and I wasn't home one day when he came home from daycare. And so he wrote me a note, Nana, where are you? <laughs> um, and he wrote me another note that, very bad spelling, but three hearts on it, and it said, I'm in love with you, Nana. Beautiful. So how, how did he know? You know, it's like, where, where did this come from? You know, the, um, so, um, the, so the first series, <laughs> yes, the first series, uh, is a, a book of three, uh, which is his most recent authoring, um, is called The Adventures of Farty McFartbrain. So <laughs> about, you know, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he spoke it. I wrote down the words. He drew the sketches. Um, and I just more recently have thought, I want to get these published. I want him to be able to say, I got books published when I was 11. Brilliant. You know? And let's make it an Amazon bestseller just for, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the first book that we did, which was mainly me, was of all these very early illustrations. So he was still a baby toddler. Um, hmm. And I put all of those together and all of the, um, all of the things, the language that we had between us. He, anytime he would come into my uh, little flat, he'd say, now here's the deal, Nana. 
<laughs> so those things. And yeah. so I married all of that conversation to these sketches, uh, very crude, early sketches of his, uh, put them all in a book together um, and gave it to all of my son. Well, my, my family don't speak, but gave it to my daughter-in-law's right extended family uh, as gifts for um, the future because all too often those they end up in the bin. Yep. You know, so that you can't keep it all, I know. But, you know, to we're the ones who make meaning of our lives. Yep. Um, and I just, in Lachlan, I just saw the potential. And so each time he'd come and stay, you know, overnight, then we'd write a book. Um, these all each took four hours. <laughs> uh, but this last one was 28 pages. Um, so I'm doing uh, 40 first. And then there are others. He's written a love story about two fighter pilots, a man and a woman. <laughs> um, that mind needs to be fostered. Yeah. You've got it, you know. He's already on the way to fully self-expressed. Yeah. And I don't want people to denude him of that. And I, and yeah. I, want, I want other people to see what I did with the first book. It's mainly for parents, the first one. You know, parents or aunties or others to go um, put it on the fridge for a week and then throw it out. No. <laughs> there, there's more that can... And to build a relationship so that you get that language. So whether they are five or six all the way through to 104 you are bringing joy self-expression and healing to every person you touch pat where can people find out more about you where can people connect with you what's the best place for them to to see you um to get a comprehensive picture uh, i've just created a new website so that's just under my name pat armistead still holding the brand joyology yeah. um but the, when Joyology was first founded, I just capitalised on it, no end. I got published every month. I made a commitment. I'm going to get published at least once a month yeah. and just a trail on Google um, where that's worked for me. Um, now I'm more, uh, I'm not so reliant on the persona of Joyology and Joyologist. Still want it and still claim it, but... Um, it's Pat Armistead showing up. Beautiful. Yeah. Full self-expression. Yes. <laughs> Outstanding. Pat, fascinating and joyful conversation. There's so many other things we could talk about, but thank you so much for sharing just a small part of your story and the joy that you've shared with the world. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you so much. And mirror, mirror. <laughs> Beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member 
that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.